Welcome back to Let's Chat with Revel and Friends. I am, of course, your host, Chris Revel, in my wildest dreams. No, no, this is Dwight. I'm I'm the host of the Broken Brain podcast and uh, sometimes an occasional guest on Let's Chat with Revel and Friends, and he lets me pretend to be him for this intro. Another thing about Chris that you should know is that he not only allows me to do this intro, I know that's a fun fact that all of you are cataloging away about him right now, he gets the best guests on, and I don't mean just the episodes that I'm on. Today he's going to be talking to Wade Roosh, who's an independent multimedia journalist, according to his website, which is waderoosh.com, W-A-D-E-R-O-U-S-H.com. He's also the host of the Soonish podcast, which is a really fun podcast. I didn't know about it until uh, Chris asked me to do this intro, but I've been checking it out. It talks all about the future and future trends with technology and culture. You should really, really check it out, but not before you hear this wonderful conversation between Chris Revel and Wade Roche. And Wade, I'm sorry if I said your name wrong. Anyway, we'll hand it off now to your very own host, Mr. Chris Revel. So this is this is cool because uh, it's rare. I I get to do. A, I've done a, a bunch of these uh, podcast episodes by now, but most of the time now, when I first started, it's gone through some transformations. It was people I knew, and then it became people I didn't know. But you're one of the few people I actually got to meet in the real world first, and now we get to kind of actually get to talk to you for a little while. So it's kind of exciting. We got to meet at the uh, PRX Podcast Garage up in Boston last month. That's right. Was, yeah, uh, glad to help you mix things up. Yeah, what a fantastic event! I, I, I don't know about you. I've, I've been making this uh, show for a bit, and up until pretty recently, I feel like it took. I always felt like podcasting was this great, great thing, but it was very isolating. Like I didn't. I've never met anyone through it in real life until that night, so it was uh, kind of a trip to actually, like, and that was the first time I, I went with my buddy Jacob, who I had met through doing this podcast, and it turned out we lived in the same uh, part of Providence, and it was the first time we had ever met in real life, and I was like, all right, so I always end up meeting people who I connect with really well, and then they live in like Finland, or like North Dakota, or LA, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, oh, we're yeah. meeting. You know, it's still kind of a schlep for you from Providence up to uh, Boston, but at least there is this community now here in, you know, forming here in Cambridge and, and Boston. And the PRX people have really done an amazing job of taking that old Jiffy Lube facility, you know, on Western Ave in Alston and turning it into a community kind of clubhouse and recording studio and makerspace and co-working center. And I think it's just going to accelerate the whole podcasting world here in Boston and, and make Boston into like one of the true epicenters for the industry. Yeah, I, I think that too. You know, because Boston has a big tech hub. Obviously, uh, that's probably I'm, my assumption is kind of why, how you ended up there. Uh, and so it's kind of nice to see that kind of follow with. Like I know, like New York and LA have. Well, I know it's really big in LA. I know some people who have like studios in New York, but I don't know if it's community oriented. And um, uh, Jacob had told me he went to like a Ocean State podcasters meetup, and it was like five people. Uh, but it's. Semi since since that I actually there's a woman in Rhode Island who has like a a podcast company and like she's starting to kind of get a little Rhode Island one off the ground which is just kind of it's it's nice it's nice meeting people. I think the um 
the podcast sort of demographics or the population centers in some ways tend to kind of reflect the locations of the the big rich public media stations so um well at least when you're talking about like the the public media aspiring side of podcasting you know podcasting is a gigantic community and there are a zillion podcast listeners and a zillion podcasters who probably don't think of themselves as part of the public media community per se but then there are a bunch of people who like cut their teeth listening to shows like this american life and really aspire to that kind of storytelling and those, I think that community really focuses in places like Boston and New York and San Francisco and Chicago and Seattle, you know, where there are these giant, um, relatively well-funded um, NPR st- uh, stations. And that's what one thing I, I liked about your podcast. The first thing, I, I just listened to it before I, like, did any research about you. I was like, wow, uh, this is like an NPR show. I mean, it, it's it's like This American Life, except I'm not depressed at the end of it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, I I have to say I just listened to your most recent episode about um uh automation uh, machines and uh jobs leaving and, and stuff and it left me feeling optimistic. Um you look at tech in such a way that isn't uh Kurtzweil-esque that made me really uh, I listened to it once because we met. I was like, "Oh, you seem like a nice guy. We're going to do the show." And I just kept listening to it cuz I just genuinely liked it and it felt like I was learning something. I've always tried to, you know, put a positive spin on the, the stories I do and not to be Pollyanna about it, not to be Panglossian about it. But what would be the point of writing about technology or science if you really did have sort of a doomsday, um, the world is the sky is falling kind of attitude? I mean, you could you could you could perform some, you know, you could be cautionary. You could help people understand what was coming there. And there's always a role for that, but it would ultimately be kind of boring and, and depressing. And I'm just not into that. So I've always kind of tried to look for the ways that we can anticipate um, the bad stuff that's coming down the pike because of technology and uh, sidestep it or, you know, d- figure out what choices we can make now that will bend the future in the direction we want. So, uh, you know, I'm always looking for the, the, the tools we can use and the things we can fiddle with, the dials we can turn to avert the worst outcomes like mass unemployment due to robots and, you know, automation. Um, there's just been way too much doom and gloom coverage on that particular subject. And I was happy to try and start bending it the other way through that particular episode. Yeah. And one thing I just interested in the way the dialogue is, it's actually never in the, in the media landscape, the soundbite is never actually about automation or robots. It's always that uh, a specific type of person is stealing our jobs, uh, especially like throughout the late '90s, early 2000s, especially right now. Like coal and like those industries are just kind of gone. But it wasn't, and, and I, I guess the one thing I liked about your episode too is like kind of learning more about. Well, a lot of this stuff is just it's just technology. People, technology releases people, and it's just like an ebb and flow to it. And right now we're in the. I guess it's also hard to hear. I'm also not a laid off labor worker. So I guess it's easier for me to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in theory, um, technology creates a bunch of new roles for people that um, eventually wind up absorbing a lot of the workforce that got um, put out of work by that same technology. But it doesn't always happen right away. And sometimes the sort of adaptation and the retraining process takes a whole generation. So you know, there's obviously a lot of displacement and discomfort and unhappiness along the way and no one has kind of invented a way to make these transitions super smooth 
Um, and we're definitely still in the middle of like the one of the biggest upsets probably in the last couple hundred years in terms of just the sheer number of people who are being displaced by the rise of um, automation and robotization of of factories. Um, and we haven't come up with good ways yet to, you know, retrain those people to do the higher skilled jobs that do still exist. But my show was like that particular episode, which was like episode four of Soonish, was pretty much focused on this much more grassroots kind of bottom up movement um, to to explore maker spaces and the, and and how new new kinds of tools like 3D printers and computer aided design software could put innovation and product design within the reach of uh, many many more people than in the past just because the tools are getting easier. So you know um, there could be a, a, a path for people who have lost their jobs over the last 10 or 20 years due to automation to find their way back into factories or back into high tech workplaces. Uh, by way of these, you know, tools that are getting easier to learn. So that was one of the themes in that show. And, you know, it was a positive, I think it's still, uh, you know, a positive and um, encouraging thing. So that's what I wanted to highlight. I never even heard of Makerspace and that stuff is interesting. So and you, you uh, one thing I, I thought interesting about you is, um, so you come from, or do we call print media traditional media and podcasting new media i don't know if people use those terms but you come you're a journalist and using podcasting as such and which made me very excited that you're someone who was from the way traditional media was and incorporating new media within within it i mean you're going out you're meeting people you're research you're doing work like you're doing a lot of work yeah i don't know how to describe exactly what world I come from. I mean, what, what adjective would be right? The, the old failing media, the, you know, that would be the Trumpian word for it. Um, the failing yeah. newspaper world. Yeah, no, I mean, I, um, so I probably, um, I don't want to presume anything, but, um, I've listened to your show, Chris, and I, I, you oh, know, I think you. some of your guests are probably, um, whom people I might call millennial or, or late millennial generation. So, um, I might want to be I might be one of the folks on the older side of your <laughs> your guest lists. Um, I'm 50. Uh, I graduated from college in 1989. Um, I got into journalism uh, by way of my one of my campus newspapers. So, you know, when I was becoming a writer and becoming a journalist, um, there was no Internet. Um, there was no web. I mean, no, the Internet existed as an academic um, network and a military network and a government network, but it wasn't really being used by average people yet. And um, that all happened while I was in graduate school in the early 90s. Um, and I was really interested in it. And I, you know, I learned how to write HTML and make web pages and stuff like that. Um, but it didn't become um, clear until like the mid to late 90s that the web would become a platform for uh, journalism. And so like for the first the first, you know, 10 to 15 years of my journalism career, I was writing just for print based publications. Um, and then um, as time went on, you know, um, I started writing for print slash online or hybrid publications. And then I wound up at a place where I was just writing online and we never printed anything. And, and <laughs> I feel like now now I'm podcasting. And so I moved on to like the next wave in, in digital communication. Um, there aren't even any words. <laughs> Not, there aren't even any written words, right? It's all spoken word, but preserved in these awesome MP3 files with RSS and 
distributed to the world. So, um, you know, I, I've always been like unafraid to jump on the next te- technological bandwagon and I'm having a ton of fun with this one. Isn't it, there's something almost, um, old to podcasting. Like when I, when I was a kid, my, my grandparents had like a summer home in upstate New York with no television. And at night we would sit by the fire and we would listen to like Prairie Hill Companion and they would reminisce of their old days and they would put on, they had like a record player. Like we would just listen to the radio and they would talk about how that's what they did as kids and how we don't understand because of TV and, you know, in a loving way. And I just think it's so funny that in a way it's gone kind of back to that. Now, sometimes I just sit around and listen to podcasts and like, it's the campfire. This is ancient man sitting around a campfire telling stories again in just the newest formation of it. And it's so simple. And it's something I, 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 it makes me, I get like emotional thinking about it. It makes me so happy to think about that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think there's definitely, I would say there's like a purity to audio storytelling um, that reaches you more directly um, at an emotional level. And that's part of the reason I wanted to try it. I I think I was becoming um, increasingly jealous of my colleagues and peers um, in the radio world and the podcasting world. Um, I could, you know, I was slaving away writing for magazines and writing for websites, and that was fun and rewarding. Um, And I was glad to have, um, you know, paying work. But I was um, listening to what was going on in the podcasting world, like starting as early as like 2003 or 2004 when the very first podcast came out. And then continuing to pay attention um, through the big sort of leaps in podcasting when when the iPhone came out and then when Apple made the podcasts app kind of um, unerasable on the iPhone and then when Serial came out in, what, 2014? I mean, there were all yeah. these big inflection points. And I just, and it felt to me like um, the podcasting world was getting uh, bigger and bigger and people were trying uh, bolder and bolder experiments and and the stories I was hearing were so gripping and so um, compelling compared to the, the effects that I felt like I could pull off on the page and I just got to the point where like I'm just done being jealous I, I have to go learn how to do this and and see if you know if I can make use of those same tools so it is a little bit like sitting around the radio um, and the you know the or the campfire um, or what you know, hearing the bard, you know, repeat Homer's lines. It's as old as civilization itself. Um, maybe the only difference is that podcasts tend to be consumed on a sort of more one to one or individualized basis. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really envision families sitting around the old iPhone listening to the you know a, a show uh, communally. <laughs> well, have you heard of Pod Brunch? No, I haven't. Um, I I haven't done it yet, but it. Um, and then I, I agree with you. I think it, I, it's always me by myself listening. But what they do is it's like a book club for podcasts where you, people set them up in their cities and you all listen to this one podcast. I'm sure they must tell you what it is. And then you get together over a brunch and talk about it. And I was like, that's the greatest idea. I'm thinking of trying to get one going in Providence. But you still, it sounds like you still listen to the shows yourself before you go yeah, to the yeah. brunch. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess if it's your chapter, you can kind of do whatever you want. And, uh-huh. and I, I think it will probably, you're right, it will probably mainly, mainly be a solo experience. I mean, I've never gone to any live tapings of a podcast, but I would certainly be interested in that. Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to maybe invent a podcast that was intended to be listened to as a group. Wouldn't that be fun? I mean, I don't know what oh, it would be, be like. So fun. I don't know what it would look like, but 
<laughs> I'm not that creative in that sense, but that's why I kind of love about the space. It's just like, there's so many shows, like I can have a podcast and then you could have a podcast and then NPR could also be in that same space and Mark Marin and all these people. And it's, it's good and bad. There's, there's almost no rules, but uh, I, I like to, to think that's what lets the good stuff raise to the top. But then there's also now, I think it's gotten big enough where it's almost, there's the marketing piece of it. Like, it doesn't matter how good your show is anymore unless you have a way to get it to people because no one's going to find it unless you advertise. Yeah, you just uh, described the whole headache that I'm starting to have right now because my show is about six weeks old. Um, I launched Soonish in mid-January of 2017, and and it's March 1st today as we're speaking. So, um, you know, I put out four episodes. Um, the fifth one is coming out next week, and I am at that exact point where um, I'm having to like recognize that I can't just spend all my time on production. I've got to start thinking seriously about promotion and marketing and building the audience. And that part doesn't come as naturally to me because I'm, you know, I'm a journalist, communicator. I'm not, uh, not so much into the sales side of it, but I do care about this show enough to, to force myself to do it. So <laughs> do you have any magic uh, advice? <laughs> Yeah, the best, the best, 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 best way is like this. Go on other people's podcasts and uh, social media is huge. I'm still learning it too. Um, I, I, I mean, I used to put out episodes where I would get 13 downloads for like the week. And I would be like, all right, let's try to get 20 next week. And now if I did that, I'd quit. Uh, but yeah, social media, going on other shows, uh, inconsistency I think is huge. Uh, I, I like to hope that we're going to get to a point where it gets so big, there's going to be whole sub-industries where people are just... And I, I think you're slowly seeing that, like, but there will be another industry of people like, give us X amount of dollars and we'll promote your podcast and get you sponsors and blah, 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 blah. So I guess that's probably the ideally, but yeah. Uh, Twitter's huge. Do you use the hashtag Potter and Family? That one's a really great tool. Yeah, I've heard about that. And um, it's sort of like a... Um, there's no formal association or organization behind that, right? It's just a, no. a kind of collective of people who have decided to help um, promote podcasting and promote each other by using that hashtag. Yeah, I don't even know. I honestly don't know who even started it. And I, I know there was like a Slack that I think I never went into. Uh, but yeah, it is just like it, it, it's been really helpful. It's just and the nicest people in the entire world. Like there's a gentleman I met. I think he I think he's like a board member if they have i don't know he's he's involved in some uh facet david he's the only one i know and um he books he has his, his he's the executive producer for a podcast with his wife called the unwritable rant and they have like actual celebrities on their show and so like he gets asked all the time how do you get how do you get eric roberts or ed bigley jr or donald clean on your show so he went on youtube and made like a 45 minute powerpoint presentation and it's like here's how you do it but what other industry would that ever happen where, like, here's a trade secret? Instead of being like, here's my thing, it was just like, here, it's everyone. Because what's, like, what's good for you is what's good for me. Right, right. I feel like there was some of that sharing also maybe like 10 years ago because blogging went through the exact same evolution. You know, there's like 300,000 podcasts right now. And so that's like where blogging was in 2004, 2005, <laughs> when everyone had a blog. And, you know, there were some people out there who were trying to um, uh, share tips and tricks for getting your blog noticed because that was that was the big challenge then. And, um, you know, so we're just going through cycles. And I, I do think that it's, it's amazing when people are willing to share 
those ideas. And there's going to be, uh, you know, a very, very long tail and, and a lot of shows will not get very much attention and hopefully the cream will rise to the top. Um, and, and, you know, you always want your show to be one of those at, in the cream, I guess. Um, but it's, it's just going to be very competitive and it's going to come down to quality, right? And uh, the type of guests yeah. you can get. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there's Forbes did a great thing. It was like seven podcast communities online you could join, and Potter and Family was one of them. Um, that's I, I, I gotta find that writer. That's I, I gotta have her on my show because she seems wonderful, and she writes. Forbes has been starting writing about podcast a little bit differently, and I've been really enjoying reading about that stuff. Um, but so uh, well, I, you you said you work for the newspaper in in the old. Well, I, I mean newspapers are still around. I think we kind of laugh them off but their importance is still for the time being yeah for the time being yeah well i'm a huge fan of uh the wire and uh the fifth season of that was kind of about the death of the media and i've gotten to listen to i I used when i first found podcasting and npr kind of stuff i i had a job that required a lot of travel so i would just go into itunes and type in david simon and listen to any speech he had ever given um but so one of the interesting things he kind of says about uh, journalism is that people, not journalism, uh, newspapers, people often kind of say the death of the newspaper was the internet. And he actually has quite the opposite response is that it was actually had the death became before that when basically they just became um, ad spaces, uh, ad words, he called it words around ad space. So I don't know if that was true to your experience. Were you seeing the writing on the wall? No, I, I'm not sure I agree with that particular argument. Um, I think it really was the internet that um, have has been the downfall of newspapers, um, because like it, newspapers went through this amazing like um, eighty year long business boom, where they had a monopoly on um, local advertising, mm-hmm. and that included both display advertising and classified advertising. And that started around 1910 or 1920 um, with the rise of like a really serious consumer culture um, in the West, in the U.S. especially. And and then and that and for a long time, the like the big local newspaper in your city was and and most cities were lucky enough to have several newspapers. But those newspapers were the only place where local retailers and service providers could actually reach consumers with news about um, offers and sales and just like uh, build their identities. And also the only place where people, you know, with jobs that were open or apartments to let or uh, whatever could could place a classified ad. So that remained true right up to like 1994 or 1995 when, you know, I think the Netscape IPO is like the starting gun that everyone points to for the Internet. Um, And... Craig Newmark came along and invented Craigslist shortly thereafter, and that was the beginning of the end for the classified section. And then Yahoo and Google invented um, pay-per-click advertising and ad auctions on the web, and it became much easier for advertisers to find their audiences and much cheaper. Um, so you know, Yahoo and Google and the other and other main providers of of online advertising have been a huge boon for business in that they have saved people billions of dollars that used to get wasted you know so there was that, that old sort of adage that old saw in the medium business in the was that um 
I know I'm wasting half of my advertising budget. I just don't know which half. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. Right. So the internet, the awesome thing about the internet was you only had to pay for ads that people actually clicked on. So you were never wasting money. Um, although, I mean, there's always this, uh, you have to consider click-through rates and whether the ads are effective and whether they actually convert into sales. But at least you kind of can pre-qualify your audience and know that the people clicking are probably interested in your product because they were searching for it. So um, the whole model shifted and newspapers left in the dust and had, had, had no like ideas left in their arsenal to compete against that and still don't, right, really. The, the only thing newspapers have left in their favor is the quality of their coverage, which is unparalleled. I mean, there's obviously no one doing journalism on the level of the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, and the other major newspapers uh, that we still count on for coverage of, of the civic sphere and the political sphere. Um, and I think, you know, Jeff Bezos recognized that when he went out and bought the Washington Post. Um, but newspapers haven't figured out how to compete business-wise with the internet. And um, the big ones will probably survive, uh, you know, through subscriptions. Um, but I think a lot more newspapers are gonna die, basically, because the business logic is all in favor of, um, of digital. And that's, that's interesting. I mean, I know it's also too hard for an institution to change when it's been doing something for so long. Um, my, I, like my, I guess another point specific would be like the music industry when the internet came along. I think, I think it's going to be interesting to look, it's going to be interesting to look back on this. And I think we already can now, but even as we go farther out, like this is the time when business and internet kind of collided and how places reacted well or did not act. The The music industry specifically just, handled it terribly and that's how they basically gave gave way to something like itunes um so i think that's kind of true with what you were saying with uh, newspapers as well it's hard it is it's a hard thing to change business model so i so i guess goodbye all small newspapers it was, it was <laughs> you. you know we were talking uh, a minute ago about automation and unemployment and you know factory workers and coal miners being out of work and so the revolution that's sweeping the media world is basically, you know, the equivalent of that. Um, it's the equivalent of um, robots taking over the assembly line. Um, and newspapers have been no quicker to bounce back and retrain and reinvent themselves than, um, you know, than former working class um, coal miners and assembly line workers. And they will, though. I mean, all the people who are doing this and who are good at journalism and good at storytelling, um, good at covering their communities will eventually find other work or will find other ways to make a living doing that work. But it's just going to be really uh, wrenching and awful and painful and horrible in the meantime, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's still very dim. I guess for me, the upside is um, that um, even though we're like in the middle of this horrible meltdown um, in the business models to support good journalism um, and and good music and and all sorts of creativity really um, there's still an amazing outpouring of great work like we, we seem to be like in the middle of a golden age for five or ten different um, categories of creativity like all at once like it is a golden age obviously for television so that's yep. kind of amazing. It's a golden age 
for things like poetry, like the, the rise of the poetry slam. Um, it's a golden age for spoken word communication with things like the moth and, you know, story collider and other celebrations of the spoken word. It's a golden age for podcasting. It is a golden age really still for writing online. Um, you know, we've kind of come through this, this blogging revolution and blogging has sort of died off as a term, but it's, it's sort of gone underground and then come back out again in different forms. You've got places like Medium, which are amazing platforms for, for publishing your own writing and reaching a, a large audience. Um, and um, you've got, you know, specialized journals popping up in all sorts of niches. Like, for example, I tend to follow science and technology press quite a lot. And there are some amazing new online publications um, in that area, like Eon and Nautilus that, you know, didn't exist five years ago, but have created these awesome new outlets uh, for for good journalism and good writing. So it just feels kind of paradoxical. It's hard to explain how um, it's harder than ever to actually make a living as a writer or creator or, or a musician. Um, but it's easier than ever to get your work out there and to, to find your audience. So um, hopefully some at some point, someone will invent a way um, to make sure that people who are really good at making things get properly compensated for it, right? Yeah, and isn't that been that also sounds like the battle of the ages too, like with artists always getting screwed over uh, by their labels or writers and journal. I think, I think it's just going to be the, the that's going to be the tale of time, um, the the same story throughout time. The the eventually, a, a large company will get more and more powerful and slowly screw over their artist, and then something will happen to change. I look at newspapers; they had a monopoly forever, and then something changed, and they scramble. Um, I was I made a joke with someone yesterday that like as much as I love Netflix right now, they're they're the Netflix is just the next Viacom. You know, it's it's great, but at some point in like fifty years, when they're still around, they're gonna be the ones we complain about because they own everything. And then the next whatever uh, Netflix, the version of Netflix in fifty years is will be taking down the Bohemian and change. It's almost like um, kind of like. Like in the basic terms, it's almost like a like slash and burn, like the way like with like agriculture, you could maybe just they slash everything, burn it, and start over. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of um, cyclical aspects to this thing. I'm not sure that means it's predictable exactly. I'm not sure that the cycles always take the same amount of time or that the same types of players arise in every cycle. But it is pretty predictable that you get. Um, I mean, one cycle I do believe in is this cycle of. Um, uh, innovative companies coming out of nowhere, um, winning big markets because they do things so well, um, and then getting big and a little bit slothful and a little bit set in their ways and being undercut by um, smaller, leaner, more nimble competitors and being totally disrupted and then having their own markets taken away from them. <laughs> and that happens over and over again. That's like that's absolutely the classic story in the world of business and technology. Um, and there are only a handful of companies that have avoided like being totally disrupted, like IBM and GE are still around and they're both, you know, uh, a century or more uh, old at this point. But um, most other companies eventually find themselves getting disrupted. And that's just almost like the natural order of things. And you just <laughs> for individuals, you just kind of want to, I guess, uh, be nimble about which boat you're on when it sinks. Like so, like, an example of that for like would that be like kind of like um, 
there's the taxi taxi cab industry and then Uber and Lyft kind of disrupted that market. Is that like an example of that? Yeah, absolutely. The, the taxi cab industry and the people who benefited for, for decades and decades from the whole system of, um, you know, taxi licensing commissions and uh, medallions in places like New York and, and Boston, you know, they had it made for uh, a long time because the number of cabs was artificially constrained. Um, there were only a certain number of medallions in each city. And, um, and basically they could charge whatever they wanted. And then along came, you know, Garrett Camp and Travis Kalanick and um, started Uber and, and used the power of mobile and, <laughs> um, and mobile plus the cloud, basically, to make it possible to call a car from anywhere at any time and have it show up a lot faster. And, you know, you would have thought that the taxi industry could have pretty easily copied that and just started letting people order cabs in an equally uh, flexible way, but they haven't been able to kind of make it work for some reason. And if they can't figure out how to compete, they are going to just die. And I'm no huge fan of Uber. Um, <laughs> oh, no, me neither. I mean, um, right. I guess, and that's kind of, I think what people get upset, people, the, the, the flip side to that with Uber is, um, I guess it's, um, and often with tech companies, it's also an unfair advantage too, because they don't have to deal with regulations and, they are strongly anti-regulation. So, some like I know with like Airbnb, can cut in and undercut the hotel industry, but hotels have to abide by certain laws. And I don't know what's right and what's wrong. It's just, it's, I guess the argument is made by people who are on the losing end of it that it isn't a fair fight. Yeah, I mean, I think companies like Airbnb and Uber try and take advantage of or flout the rules for as long as they possibly can. Um, and that is part of their competitive advantage in the early stages. Um, but all of them eventually have to come around. You know, Uber is eventually going to have to come around. Airbnb has actually kind of been working to come into compliance in most of the big cities where it does business. Um, and, and I think they're even trying to figure out how to um, comply with hotel tax regulations in certain cities. And then in other cities, they're like spending enormous amounts of money on lobbying to make sure that they don't get... Um, regulated in the same way so you know it doesn't that ultimately hurt us as citizens too though because then we're losing out on that tax revenue yeah you can absolutely argue that yeah but i mean if you ask that's like what an average for today <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean the average consumer would probably say i really like airbnb i really like uber you know i it's easier for me to get a ride now it's easier for me to find a place to stay i've you know I've, i can play i can stay in places that weren't even available to me before and like some of the best visits I've had to other cities have been visits where I was able to stay in someone's house. And, um, and that's all really cool. Um, so I think most consumers would be really reluctant to give up those kinds of advantages. Um, uh, and it's like only if their brother-in-law loses his job because he used to be a cab driver, do they start thinking about the, the downside of this stuff? Mm -hmm. I've used Airbnb. It it's wonderful. I've actually never used Uber and I've never used Lyft. I just, I just have never needed to. I've never been anywhere where I didn't have transportation already provided or had my own automobile with me. But, um, well, I think Lyft is a better company from my understanding with background checks. But um, one thing I did want to ask you about, uh, your website is very well laid out. You've done so many things. I know I can't hit all of it, but it looks like you did something with NASA and I'm blown away by that. I was, um, for about 18 months or two years, I was working for a contractor 
called Sterling Software, and Sterling had a contract with NASA Ames Research Center to manage um, big big chunks of the of the base. Um, you know, NASA has a whole bunch of um, field centers. Um, it's a very decentralized agency. There is a central office in Washington, but all of the activities of the agency go on in these field centers like um, Kennedy Space Center, Houston Man Space Flight Center. Um, and I was at NASA Ames working at a place called the um, Numerical Aerodynamic Simulation Facility, or NAS. And it, it still goes by the same acronym today, but it's um, they changed the, the meaning of it. I think today it's the National or the NASA Advanced Supercomputing Facility. Yeah, NASA Advanced Supercomputing. So it's still NAS, but a different, <laughs> a different term. And it basically was NASA's um, largest single um, locus of uh, high-speed computers. Uh, and, and they used it to do simulation for all sorts of things. They originally invested in um, having this computing cluster because they understood that um, the, the wind tunnel was dying as a technology um, and that it was becoming possible to model the performance of spacecraft and aircraft um, digitally without having to uh, build actual models and stick them in wind tunnels. And that it was actually way cheaper and, and better to do it that way. So NASA wound up with this giant building full of supercomputers um, at Ames in Mountain View, California. And I wound up working there uh, after I moved out west in 1998 and was helping them to uh, manage publications and while I was there, I helped them to start a new magazine that kind of chronicled the type of science that was going on using those computers. And so it was really awesome because I had been a total NASA fanboy like my whole life. And the opportunity to work at NASA Ames was, and, and see how the agency works from the inside was, was really awesome. God, I'm just hoping, you might, I hope they gave you like lots of free hats and like t-shirts and stuff. Like, <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would just take care of Christmas right there. Okay. They did have an awesome gift store, yeah. And I, I do remember uh, buying lots of, um, you know, uh, NASA insignia hats and T-shirts and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, I I'm, I love, like, everyone at NASA. It's so cool and romanticized. And um, I, I'm hoping some of the some of that stuff, uh, if you happen to see that movie uh, Hidden Figures, which was very, it was very good, uh, maybe, because I feel like we kind of lost some of the NASA momentum in this country. I don't. Feel, I think it's been very well documented that we kind of lost some of our NASA momentum in this country, and um, I'm hoping like hidden figures can kind of bring it back a little. And uh, wonderful people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who are kind of always trying to encourage people to become more interested in in science. Yeah, we could spend another hour just talking about that. But I I'm a huge um, proponent of space exploration, um, and I, I deeply respect uh, NASA's history as the agency that um, that pulled off most of the uh, amazing accomplishments in space exploration for our country. You know, um, but I'm also kind of realistic about the challenges that NASA faces and uh, the, you know, the reality is um, the agency doesn't have enough money to uh, carry out their stated mission. Um, it's going to be really hard for them to um, to get to Mars by the 2030s unless they get some major funding. Um, the agency's kind of, um, you know, this is an old story. This, is, and, and, and this isn't news to anybody, but the very fact that they are sort of so decentralized and so divided across all these centers makes it harder for them to pull together as one agency. And now they've got competition in the form of, of SpaceX and other private companies. So 
it's hard to know what their future is exactly. But I think you're absolutely right that there is something going on here in terms of like renewed enthusiasm, public enthusiasm for the space program. And it's partly thanks to um, to popular media and movies like Hidden Figures, which I haven't seen yet, but I want to I definitely want to see it. I think um, The Martian, the Matt Damon movie. Oh, um, God, it was it felt like a documentary. Yeah, I think that movie did more than almost anything in the last 10 years to kind of like remind people of how amazing, how cool space travel is and how we really ought to be exploring the solar system. And these are things that are within our grasp. Um, And that movie was just so well done in terms of the technical accuracy. And, um, you know, it was also just like a good old swashbuckling science fiction movie with good acting, awesome special effects. Um, lots of suspense, um, a good story, you know, a good old Robinson Crusoe story. I've heard that movie described as like um, competency porn. So like, um, oh, I like that <laughs> competency porn in the sense of like, okay, it's a MacGyver type situation, right? Here's this guy who's like stranded on Mars and he's going to have to survive for two years until the spaceship can come and rescue him. And how do you do that? Given like this kit of equipment like you've got two rolls of uh duct tape and you've got um five potatoes and some solar panels and how are you going to survive for two years <laughs> right um oh that's great yeah yeah and that's what and just watching him figure out how he does that is was to me like the most fun part yeah. of the movie and i you know so i think it kind of reminded people of like what a human enterprise space exploration is and how it kind of ennobles us in a way and just challenges us to be even better than we are. And so I would love to see a true reinvestment in space exploration of all sorts. Obviously, we've got to be sending out um, as many or more robotic probes um, as we, you know, uh, I guess, so So to back up a little bit, there's always been this perception that there's this rivalry um, or this zero-sum game where every cent that NASA spends on on Um, sending people into space is a scent that they don't spend on uh, robotic space exploration. And you could argue that like the biggest, the best science uh, and the biggest discoveries have actually been the ones that um, have come from probes like the Voyager probes and Cassini and, you know, uh, the New Horizon mission that flew by Pluto and even things like the Hubble Space Telescope that are pretty much, you know, autonomous or robotic um those that investment in the unmanned space program has been the one that has really um paid the, the biggest dividends in, in terms of science and in terms of like the images we get back um but putting people into space is still the thing that i think um catches people's heartstrings and gets them excited and so you can't just you can't just not send people into space we have to figure out a way to keep doing it um, and I hope NASA can do both. And there's no sign yet of what the Trump administration really thinks about space exploration. Um, I doubt it's yeah. good. I, I doubt it's whatever I want it to be. It <laughs> seems to be going the way of everyone else feels about everything else. We'll see, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so I, one thing about I'm always curious about is um, what is the obsession with Mars? Because I, I have my wife's uh, family friends, we were at uh, Christmas Eve. I, I can only paraphrase. We had this. They're scientists, wonderful people, and they kind of went off. They kind of hate Elon Musk, 
and they hate Mars, and they think that the whole thing with Mars is just kind of bullshit, and it's the only reason that we go for it is because it gets the emotional aspect, and then Congress can get votes off of it. And then they had all these other places we should be looking that aren't Mars. But um, so, what are your thoughts on like, like, because like, can't humans not even exist on Mars? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a big. There's so many other planets to go, to go to. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's only eight. There's only eight planets in our solar system, and the only two that are um, very close are Venus and Mars. And we can't go to Venus because yeah. the surface of Venus is um, like. 1200 degrees yeah yeah. (laughs) there's just um and and mars is the um closest planet where we can actually touch down and do anything and so you know in this i might refer you to um an an amazing book that came out recently um called earth in human hands by uh, a science writer and scientist uh named david grinspoon and it's partly about this question of um, who are we as a species and are we meant to explore the solar system and um, how do we become better gardeners of, of this planet? Um, mm. And part of what Grinspoon kind of asks us to do is to realize that we've got these three planets, uh, Venus, Earth, and Mars, that are like um, perfect case studies or bookends for what can happen uh hist- over the over geological time to a planet's climate and they and venus and mars actually like represent opposite ends of a spectrum of where planets can end up and the best science is that all three of those planets were earth-like um at some point like three billion maybe four billion years ago they all started out with roughly the same conditions the same amount of water um atmospheres um that were you know roughly equivalent um but venus kind of took the path of a uh catastrophic uh greenhouse gas warming and and now there's it's basically irreversible um and that Mm, that sounds familiar barren and sterile for forever and mars had water and it had a thicker atmosphere um but because it's a little bit smaller and the gravity is less, it kind of lost its atmosphere and it lost a lot of its water and it became cold um, and, as far as we know, lifeless. And, and Earth was sort of like the lucky one in the middle for, for mm. a, a number of you know, reasons, um, sort of in the Goldilocks zone where we're getting just the right amount of sunlight um, to keep the water uh, liquid most of the time and, and a whole bunch of other factors. But... Basically, you know, we need to understand exactly how Venus and Mars work um, in order to better understand how Earth works and how we can keep Earth healthy. So that's, in my mind, that's the single biggest reason to keep going to Venus and Mars is to study them more thoroughly. Now, there's a second big reason in my mind, and that's that um, I think it would be a good idea to have a backup planet. And here's that's that's sort of where I um, sympathize a little bit with Elon Musk and his vision. Um I think he's kind of a uh, a buccaneer in a way, right? He's just kind of an adventurer. He's he's definitely a Tony Stark type, and and has the guts and glory and daring to do something like that. So I mean, all all in, all in favor of of having him go and prove that the public the private sector can actually beat the public sector to the moon or to Mars. But probably the biggest reason to do that in the short term is just to make sure that there are some humans who are not on Earth. 
in case Earth gets walloped by um, an extinction level event like an asteroid. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the scenario that you can't do anything about, but that you always worry about a little bit. There's like a certain chance in any given year. It's a small chance. It's probably like one in 10,000. But there's a small chance that there could be an asteroid that could come along and could end all life on Earth. And it would. Before. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it would be a real shame if that happened before we actually had um, established colonies on the moon or Mars or other places where we could preserve human knowledge and maybe start over, right? Um, we are so close to being able to do that um, that it would be like really ironic and sad if we got wiped out before we did that. So I think we should go as soon as we possibly can. It wouldn't the moon be more like the hub where we get to the moon and then go from the moon to the next thing? Yeah, I mean, in a way, yeah. Um, there's a certain sort of cost um, to touching down on uh, it's all it all has to do with orbital mechanics and how much rocket fuel you have to spend to get into orbit and land on a, a surface and then get back off the surface um, but so there's a certain argument for putting a bunch of manufacturing on the moon and making some fuel there and then going to Mars but there's also an argument for just going straight to Mars I feel like that's where the all some great sci-fi can just start with that though I, like, did you see Interstellar by any chance? Yeah, absolutely. I, some people didn't really like the ending, but I thought there was some great stuff with that, with just like space travel is the norm and bye bye Earth. Or I, even, you know what movie uh, Disney did a great, or Pixar with a Wally? That movie, like, nailed it. <laughs> yeah, that was, <laughs> that was an amazingly dystopian movie, considering that it was a Disney movie. <laughs> But yeah, it's interesting. And I guess environmentalists, I see both sides of it. Also part of it, it should be like, well, you kind of get one planet. You got to take care of it. But I also agree with there are there are other factors like what if the sun explodes or uh, an asteroid or. Yeah, then you got to wonder, too, like because the universe is so in, so large and infinite and there's so many, so many things out there. Like it just makes me think that there's there's definitely some form of if not human, like what we would consider animal life somewhere. Like it just, I don't know. I know there's no proof that we have humans, human likes anywhere else, but God, wouldn't that be cool? Uh, um, that's another topic that I really love to talk about. And to me, like one, one really interesting question is why um, this is Fermi's paradox. Have you ever heard that term? No. Um, so all of the math that we've done, um, if you try and like calculate the likelihood that there are other um, technological civilizations in our Milky Way galaxy, um, you can you can do it using a thing called the Drake equation, which uh, was invented by an astronomer named Frank Drake back in the 50s or 60s, and it was basically just like a um, a simple blackboard equation for figuring out how many other civilizations there might be in our galaxy that uh, we could potentially communicate with because they have technology like you know like radio um and you like you start with the number of stars in our galaxy and then from there on it's like every term in the equation is a fraction so what fraction of those stars have planets what fraction of those planets are in the habitable zone um, that could harbor life uh, on what fraction of those habitable planets does life actually arise um what percentage of of planets with life um, develop intelligent life. Um, 
what percentage of those civilizations get to you know survive to the point where they have technology and and things like um, space travel and radio and then um, like one of the last terms in the equation is what's the average lifetime of those species like how long can they survive before they destroy themselves or before they get wiped out and like if you go through all that math then in theory there really ought to be um, you know a f at least a few but probably hundreds probably thousands of high-tech civilizations in the galaxy so and it all depends on your assumptions about each term in the in the equation right um, so Fermi's paradox is uh, given some very reasonable assumptions about those numbers there really ought to be thousands of other civilizations and if they're if that's true why haven't we met any of them like wh why aren't they actually here why haven't they come to earth um, and then they're like there are extreme versions of this where if you assume that like uh, high-tech civilizations get good enough at technology you can imagine them building um, like self-replicating robots that could very easily go out and and scan and visit um, and, and maybe even colonize the whole galaxy one one system at a time um, so even if they couldn't come here themselves uh, because you know of limitations in the speed of light or whatever they could at least send their robots and the robots would get here eventually but we haven't seen any of them either so where the hell are they right and that's Fermi's paradox and I think that is a really interesting question for science and, and maybe also for philosophy <laughs> to, hmm. to think about. Um, yeah, I find that stuff fascinating, too. And then I mean, but we think about it is, uh, but we only have uh, our senses. So what if you add like another sense to it? Like, so if there's so, like, you know, what if what if they don't operate with uh, hear, feel, see, touch, smell? And this, this isn't something I thought of. I hear Neil, I hear Neil deGrasse Tyson go on this like fucking awesome, crazy thing. Uh, so what if we add like a sixth sense that they operate on a sense that we don't have so they could be here, but we can't like interact with each other. Uh, it's obviously very theoretical, but it's just it's interested by how much we know we don't know and how we're kind of limited by what we have. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and also, who's to say this doesn't happen? What if it already had happened or what if it had? You know, and it's just uh, the generation, multiple generations before us uh, didn't document it. And some people can even theorize that aliens have visited Earth and that's where we get like the pyramids and the Aztecs. I mean, those people are wrong, but it's fun. Yeah, they're, they're wrong. <laughs> they're just wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's when you get the stupid Indiana Jones movies at the end, <laughs> the newest one. But uh, but the future, but I, I, I think about that stuff kind of a lot. And, you know, it's funny. I was never, I've never been a big like sci-fi person, but that's, I guess... I feel like that paradox you were mentioning, and uh, I'm, I'm more apt to believe that there's um, a mirroring human life elsewhere in our universe than I am to to want to read like watch Star Trek or something, because for some reason I just feel that's way more realistic. I've been um, a big science fiction fan most of my life. I'm not like a hardcore science fiction fan who goes to conventions every weekend, um, and but I, I got a really interesting assignment recently, which is that the um, the editors at MIT Technology Review Magazine asked me to, to um, assemble and edit the 2018 volume of their annual science fiction anthology. Um, it's called 12 Tomorrows, and it comes out roughly every year, and it's published uh, by MIT Technology Review and the MIT Press. And so I'm in the middle right now of um, putting together uh, the best possible science fiction authors I can find to write 
uh, 11 short stories uh, for this volume. And it's been really fun because it's it's given me um, a reason to kind of get back up to speed on on who's writing um, sort of the most provocative hard science fiction that we're by hard science fiction. I mean, science fiction that takes the technology of today seriously and extrapolates from that and doesn't break the rules of physics as we know them. So, you know, no dragons, no magic, um, no phantom dimensions, um, just kind of extrapolating from our current reality and going into the near future. And that's the kind of stuff I like to think about anyway. So it's it's been an amazingly fun project. And um, and the book will be out next spring uh, from MIT Press. Um, yeah. What do you think the near future is with your knowledge of tech? Uh, any predictions? And nothing like nothing crazy far out, but like what's like the next thing or what do you think could be the next thing? Hmm. That's a tough one. You know, I think. A lot of the trends that we're seeing right now will only continue. Like, it's interesting to think about uh, what will happen to social life and uh, personal communication as um, more and more people get smartphones. Obviously, like, probably at least half of the population now has a smartphone. Um, But then there's the other half who don't. And, like, there's 1.7 billion people on Facebook, but that still leaves like uh, seven, you know, six billion people who don't have Facebook. <laughs> so there's a lot of um, population that hasn't shared in this bounty yet, um, and yet it's a it's a highly sort of ambivalent bounty, ambiguous bounty uh, to share in because um, while these tools give us access to all human knowledge and endless wells of entertainment and the ability to stay in touch with our loved ones and all that. They also wind up distracting us and stressing us out and getting us addicted in, in ways to like um, different kinds of, of media and content and games. And they, they wind up getting in the way of, of true face-to-face interaction a lot of the time. So um, we aren't, it's not, it's not a simple story. Like we, it's amazing that we have these tools. We have so much, so much more access, so much easier access to knowledge um, than we ever did, and yet uh, we seem to be growing apart from each other in terms of our ability to communicate and understand each other and act as a, uh, a civil society. Um, so, you know, as those technologies reach even more people, it's kind of frightening to consider how that might change politics. You know, so. I think we're already seeing a lot of the side effects here in the U.S. of uh, filter bubbles and the, how amazingly easy it is for people to kind of uh, just become completely locked into their worldview and to wind up getting only a specific brand of news from their preferred providers of news and be unable to kind of understand the larger world or Obviously, I have a certain bias myself. I'm a little more of a lefty than a righty, and you know I have my own filter bubbles. But um, I, I would put part of the blame for the polarization um, or in, in politics today uh, on technology. And um, while I'm a huge fan of technology, I'm also part of my job is to be cautionary about it. And I'm just really curious about how mobility and the internet and personalized sort of nature of technology is going to exacerbate that trend and how we're going to find ways to um, counteract it. 
I think it's it. You're the one of the few people who didn't jump to the uh, robots AI. We're all gonna die. <laughs> I, I actually think that's because you actually know about technology. When everyone starts giving me the robot talk, I'm like, that's just because you just watched the Terminator and you don't know what you're talking about. Well, Chris, have you tried to use Siri or Alexa or Cortana lately? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're they're stupid. Yeah, you know, I I, I love the show uh, Silicon Valley. I don't know if you happen to watch that on HBO. Yeah. Oh, it's great. And but one of the funniest, I, I saw this. Uh, one of the creators was talking. Uh, Mike Judge was talking about it. He says one of the funniest things about um, robots is that he's like they're just drunk children. Like the the Intel, the the hardware is brilliant, but the the outware, the software is just fucking stupid. Like there's one episode when they hit the deer. It's just like it just looks like a drunk child on the floor. It's so funny. But yeah, yeah I, I mean, it, it, I, I don't mean to. Um, it is. I don't mean to demean the, the accomplishments of the people who built these systems. Um, you know, I actually know and have spoken to um, the inventors of Siri. And Siri, oh, wow. Siri is an amazing thing. Um, and so are Cortana and Alexa. And, uh, and there's just so much um, computational power under the hood of these systems. And like uh, on the natural language processing alone, like the speech recognition part, um, that it took forever to really make that as good as it is now. And it's amazingly good. I mean, Siri understands almost everything you say. It's yeah. just that she doesn't know what to do with it. And she's not, she doesn't have much general knowledge of the world um, and, and, and therefore winds up kind of seeming kind of inept. Um, and I just don't think the general public understands uh, how far we still have to go uh, in terms of general artificial intelligence it's going to be a long, long, long time before we have to worry about um, AIs that are as good as humans um, at general uh, general understanding of the world. I think AI will get much better in very specific realms, um, and you know we will have to worry about more and more people lose, potentially losing their jobs um, to artificially intelligent systems that get you know good enough at doing something that they wind up being um, being able to displace a worker because they can do it for less money. That's a real thing. But um, in terms of you know Skynet and the Terminator, and, and no, that's just not happening. It's, intelligence is a much harder problem than people generally understand. Oh, that's great. Uh, so we're actually about at the hour, and I have to go to work in the morning. Uh, so I know there's a million things to touch upon, but is there anything that we missed? And if not, where... Can people find you uh, online? You're asking, yeah. So, you know, we bumped into each other because of that thing at the podcast garage, and I was there because um, I am now a podcaster, and uh, I, I love it if people checked out my show, which is called Soonish, and it's at soonishpodcast.org. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Soonish Podcast, and I'm on Facebook, and, you know, you can subscribe at iTunes and Google Play Music and Stitcher and TuneIn and all the regular places. Um, you know, it's a, it's a show, like you said, that's, it aspires to kind of be a storytelling show, um, uh, in the, in the sort of large family of storytelling shows that includes like This American Life and, and Radio Lab and 99% Invisible and those kinds of shows, but it's focused very much on the future and how we think and talk about the future and what, what, how the choices we make today in our actual, uh, lives as consumers and citizens and voters will determine the course of the future, um, the near future and, and the far future. So 
I'm only five episodes in. I've got an infinite number of topics left to explore. But, you know, in this first season, I've been looking at things like um, work and manufacturing and robotics. Um, I, I did an episode on uh, movies and like 2001, A Space Odyssey. and why oh, That's a really good episode. Yeah. I like that one a lot. Thank you. Um, there was an episode about museums, which might sound like a weird topic, but actually, you know, museums are highly technology dependent these days and, and they need to figure out how to use technology to get people in the door and make sure people stay engaged while they're there, especially young people who basically have a phone glued to their hand <laughs> the whole time. So it would be good to understand what those kids are doing with their phones and how they can be, how, how you can tap into the power of the phone to make the museum experience better. So that's what that episode was about. And I just, I tend to range it all over the place. In a way, the show is kind of like an excuse um, a container uh, for me to, to cover almost anything I want. Um, because, you know, I've always been interested in technology and how it, how it crosses over with society and culture. And this, this title, Soonish, and this framework of the show about the future and how we think about the future gives me kind of carte blanche to, to go in almost any direction I want as long as I bring it back to technology and how it affects the way we live. Oh, excellent. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, awesome. Thanks, Chris. This was really fun. Oh, thank oh, you so much. This is Thank you for listening to the Cortemp Arts Podcast Network. To listen to more Cortemp Arts shows, visit cortemparts.com.